We are going to start a brand new series this Sunday. We're, t- we're pressing pause on the Gospel of John. We've worked through 16 chapters in about three years. Well done, everybody. We are going to uh, work through chapters 17 through 21 in 2018. So something to look forward to. In 2018, we will finish, uh, finish out the Gospel of John. But we're, we're pressing pause. And this month, in uh, the month of June, um, over the next four weeks, we're, we're doing a series on work and rest. Two weeks on work, two weeks on rest. I would argue that these are two of the things that we have the most out of whack in our lives and in our society. I'll be really honest with you. I'm not sure I even know how to rest properly. <laughs> like, does anybody have a day of rest, a Sabbath or like a Saturday? And just like, you're just like recuperating or you're antsy and you just keep working and working, but then eventually your soul is just heavy or... or do you know how to treat work? Do you, do you think you're doing it right? <laughs> do you, uh, so we're going to spend two weeks looking at work, two weeks looking at rest, and trying to create this picture of what a healthy rhythm would look like and what it means theologically. What, are the, what does the Bible tell us about work and how we should view it, how we should do it? What does it tell us about rest and what that really means and what it looks like in light of Jesus and all those things? So that's where we're going over the next couple of weeks. Uh, uh, next uh, number of weeks. This morning, though, we're going to start to paint the picture of of what we're talking about in regards to work. A Gallup poll done in Canada um, recently reveals that only 16% of Canadians are engaged in their work. Only 16% of Canadians are engaged in their work. Gallup defines engaged workers as those who work with passion and feel a profound connection to their company or just a profound connection to their work. Passionate about their work, 16% of Canadians. 14%, almost the same number, 14% are actively disengaged. The way they define actively disengaged is employees that are so unhappy at work that they undermine what their engaged coworkers accomplish. In other words, they are so disengaged that they're detrimental to their company or their workplace to the other employees around them. So while 16% are passionate workers and contributing well, 14% are undermining that. While 70% are just generically not engaged. The bulk of workers, the unengaged are, according to the Gallup poll, sleepwalking through their workday, putting time, but not energy or passion, into their work, the report says meaning 84% of Canadians are in some way disengaged in their work. Hayes Hayes Canada did a survey and its results said 47% of Canadians are not happy with their jobs. The job itself, just not happy with it, nearly half. So that's half of us in the room. Not happy with our jobs, 84% of us are disengaged in our work. We have a really complicated relationship with work as well, don't we? Some of us, if we're really honest, work too little. I mean, I only work a day a week, right? So, (laughs) Work too little. Don't actually, if we're honest, don't have a strong work ethic. To use a cruel word about it, we're slothful. We're lazy. We're not treating work rightly. 
But I would argue that the flip side of it is far more common. Some of us love work, which is great to love work, but love work too much because we've made an idol out of it. Our work alone is what we look to for meaning and significance and identity in our lives. When someone says, what do you do? And we respond, we're telling them everything that we think matters about us. We love it too much. We've made it an idol. Or we just plain work too much. We're workaholics. Here's the thing about our society when it comes to being a workaholic. It's, it, we don't think it's a sin. We think it's a virtue. So, you know, the classic job interview and the person interviewing for the job says, so tell me, what, what are your weaknesses? You ever get that question? So what are your weaknesses? Here's a classic. Ah, I would, I would probably say that I, you know, I work too hard, you know? And I, I, people tell me that, yeah, I care too much. I work too hard. And then meanwhile, the interviewer is like, hired, hired, good. Right? We think that that's a great thing. It's a virtue in our society, not a sin. So we have work really mixed up. A lot of us don't like our jobs, period. We spend 35% of our total waking hours working. In our employable years of life, 35% of that time is spent working. But what, we're being, what, what, what the stats are showing us is that 84% of us are disengaged in that work. 50% of your total waking hours during any given work week are given to work. More than that, if you're a parent of young children or you own a smartphone, right? Like it's just more, it's more, it's more. You, we work a lot. That's a lot of time. And listen, if we haven't discovered a theology of work or how our faith connects with our work, that's a lot of time that we're not actually sure what to do with or how it connects to me and Jesus. Right? We could talk about it. We're going to talk more about it next week. We could talk about maybe use the language of our private lives and our public lives. Well, you know, I have Jesus in my, my private life, my faith, and I'm walking with Jesus. But in my public life, where I spent 50% of my waking hours in a given work week, I don't actually know how to connect it to my faith. That's a lot of time. That's a lot of life where we're not connecting the dots of who we're made to be in Jesus. So over the next couple of weeks, we want to discover work's place in our lives. And this morning, we'll start at the beginning. It's the very best place to start. So Genesis chapter 1, if you have a Bible, Genesis 1, the very first chapter in the Bible we're going to hang our hats there. Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. It'll also be on the screen. Here's what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps and is creepy on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And listen to this. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
we're going to approach this text where we're going to glean from it four different things this morning. First, that we were created for work. We were created for work. Secondly, we're going to look at this thing that excites me a lot, having to do with culture making. Thirdly, this idea of ruling and reigning. And fourth, training for reigning. We're going to look at how this life affects what is to come for eternity. So first, created for work. Let's just pause and pray and we'll work our way through. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word tells us that you're the word made flesh who came to dwell among us. Thank you that you give us this life-giving word that the scriptures, the Bible that we can come to and glean from and that you are directly speaking to us through where the Bible speaks, you speak. More than that, this morning, Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would impress your words on our hearts, that we would not merely learn, but we would learn in such a way that you impress it on our hearts and it changes the way we live, that it gets applied. Move among us, Lord. Speak this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ancient origin accounts are really interesting, talking about how everything came to be. The Greek creation account, for example, um, was that neither gods or human beings, neither of them had to do any work in the original golden age. So Greek mythology says that in this original golden age, neither the gods nor humanity worked. And that was the golden age. But after the golden age came work, ah, this, this necessary evil. Now we have to give ourselves to work, meaning work, bad. The Babylonian creation account is the same, essentially. This god Marduk who came and he kind of rules over everything, realizes, wow, the world is a lot to keep going. It's a lot of work and I don't like work. I'd rather rest and hang out and so you know what Marduk did in Babylonian, in this Babylonian creation account of origins? What he did was he created humanity so that he could essentially have cheap slave labor. So humans could do the work on earth and Marduk, this God, could just hang out because work is bad. Well, the biblical account... Is, is, is extremely unique because you can look at ancient, ancient creation account, ancient origin account after ancient origin account and just see that kind of thing, that work is this bad thing, it's not good. The biblical account is unique. In Genesis 1 verse 1, the very first verse of the Bible, you know what it says? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible begins with God working. In the beginning, there was work. Not only was there work, God wasn't simply doing this kind of highbrow, white-collar work. It says that God fashions man out of the dust. God got his hands into the dirt and the dust and fashioned humanity. Any of you ever come home with dirty hands at the end of a workday? I mean, I don't, obviously, but ever. <laughs> but many of you do. Did you know that's a God-like quality? 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and he reached down into the dirt, into the dust, and he fashioned humanity. The Bible opens, it's very unique, with God working. God got his hands dirty. He did manual labor. This shows us that work is good and that there's great dignity in it. God worked in the creating of the world and he continues to work in the sustaining of it. We see this throughout the scriptures, right? God's providence is that he is working all things. He's in the midst of doing work. Psalm 104 verse 14 says, you cause, this is about God, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate. God does that. The grass is constantly growing. God's doing that, it says. Psalm 145, 16 says, you open your hand. God does that. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The hungry animals, God opens his hands. Seeds that bear fruit, God opens his hands. Everything that has need, God opens his hand. He's doing that. Jesus says in John 5, 17, Jesus answered the group, my father is working until now and I am working. God the father, working. God the son, working. And we are, it says in Genesis 1, made in the image of God. And from the start, given a job description. Every people in all of history have asked these big existential questions of why do I exist? Why am I here? What are we here for? What's our meaning? What's our purpose? Why did God make humanity? Everybody has always had an answer to that question. Even atheists have an answer to that question. It's all one big cosmic accident. None of it matters. So live how you will. Make the most of this life, right? Everybody has an answer to that. Well, the Bible has an answer to that. The answer to the question in Genesis 1 and 2 is, like in verse 26, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them have dominion. In, verse, in chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 15, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Why did the Lord God take man and put him in the garden? So that he could work. You and I were created in this really earthy, ground-level way to rule the earth. That's our meaning and purpose. It's why we exist. Of course, it builds from there. It rounds from there. But in this basic form, we were created to rule over the earth. The vision of work in Genesis is not to work to live, but live to work. And since about 84% of you are disengaged in work, that sounds like horrible news. Really, it's not work to live work, get that done with, get it over with, so then I can really live. It's actually live to work. Look, studies are showing that the whole make as much money as possible in as little time as possible with as little effort as possible so you can get off work and do something else and eventually retire early is actually making people really unhappy. <laughs> Our lives are meant to contribute to meaningful work. Studies show that retirement goes best when work is redirected, not discontinued. So it's actually found to be unhealthy and unsatisfying to work and work and work till you can retire or retire early and then not work. It actually takes away the meaning of your life, the reason why God made you, and it leads to unhappiness. That's why people who lose their jobs or on disability, there's this tension of feeling like, ah, I'm not contributing, I'm not doing what I was made for. And so studies are telling retirees, redirect your work. Don't stop working. It's not good for you. 
redirect that work into passions and volunteering and things that bring you great joy and you will have great health and happiness. As God made everything, He made it good. His whole creation was very good. Then He rested after six days of creating, of working, and stood back with satisfaction and said, that's good. That's really good. You ever do that? Stand back after five, six days of working, see what you've built, see what you've made, see what you've contributed to, and actually say, that's good. There's been little brief moments in my life when I've done, you know, some trades. And what I like about that, you laugh. Yeah, all right. <laughs> well, I'm the first to say, you know, like I could stand back, you know, from like that chair I made and just look at that chair and say, I made that. That chair won't withstand the weight of any human being, but I made that. I can look at that. I did that, right? We can all do that. We said, that's something like God's rhythm. He worked for six days and fashioned something stunning and stood back, not because he was exhausted and tired, but because he was just in this space of looking and appreciating and saying, wow, that's good work. You're tapping into something of how image of God, being an image bearer of God, when you step back from your work and be like, I gave myself to that and that is good. Work is what we were created for. It happens before the fall. It's not a result of sin. It's part of God's design for humanity. God put Adam and Eve in the garden to work it and care for it. Work is what we were created for. Work was part of paradise. We need to understand that. Work is good. We were made for it. Now let's go a, a level deeper. Let's talk about culture making here. Verse 28 says, God said, fill the earth and subdue it. Fill the earth and subdue it. Theologians call this text the cultural mandate. God is mandating here that humanity, humans, create culture. That's what he's telling them to do. In Genesis 2.15, again, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Or, or, or more, more closely to the original, to cultivate it. It's where we get the word culture from. For humans to fill the earth is to create civilizations. Dominion over the garden was to expand to dominion over the whole earth. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. It wasn't meant to just be contained in the garden. It was always meant to push out to the ends of the earth. See, we assume wrongly, you and I, oftentimes when we just think casually about it, that Adam and Eve were just supposed to garden a bit to get out the clippers and trim the hedges and then take a break and eat a piece of fruit. Like not that fruit, but like the, you know, all the, all the other fruit and just like enjoy it and push the lawnmower a little bit and then kick back. And that was supposed to be humanity forever. No, no, it wasn't. They were instructed to fill and subdue the earth. Adam and Eve would produce children. Think about it with me. Would produce children who would produce families who would create cities. And the people of these cities would create culture, which they have done. Language, farming, food, right? Like bread and nachos. <laughs> Stew, butter chicken. Praise God. art, the gathering of raw materials into something that actually stirs the human soul. Wow. 
creating culture, engineering, right, from design to construction, thought from philosophy to theology, music from Bach to Bieber, right? Right, we're, talking, we're, we're in the time of the fall, right? So we just have to, we have to follow the timeline here. The fall happens, so. There's over 7 billion people on the planet today. We got that whole be fruitful part down. Well done, everybody. Over 7 billion people. Be fruitful, multiply, well done, great. And of this over 7 billion people on the planet, we are so diverse and unique. And yet we're all called, we're going to look at this more in a little bit, we're all called to rule, subdue, work, take care of the earth. But we all do that in unique ways. Is anybody else like me and has a very dear friend named Coffee? Very dear friend. Only three of us? What's really? All right, all right. I love coffee. I need coffee. Maybe that's wrong. But think about culture making here for a moment with me. Just when it comes to coffee. If you've been to the coffee shop lately, somebody brewed that coffee for you, no? But someone also made the machine it was brewed with. Someone also owns the coffee shop. Someone grew the coffee beans. Someone flew to that farmer across the world where those coffee beans are grown and created some sort of fair arrangement, hopefully, on how to buy those beans. Somebody roasted those beans. Somebody transported those beans. And all of that combined turned into this cup of goodness and sheer grace. And I praise God for every single person involved in the culture-making which is coffee. Has our culture not changed around coffee? It's changed. And that's just one thing. But think of all the people who are part of culture making just when it comes to coffee. Not only was the computer made, which is a mind-boggling accomplishment, incredible, but Steve Jobs came along and invented the Apple computer, a far superior <laughs> and more stunningly beautiful computer than the rest. You PC folks balk, but eventually maybe someday you'll have style. <laughs> just kidding. Just joking. Just joking. <laughs> this works so well. Wow. Look, not only were vacuums invented, which is incredible because we don't have to suck up dirt through a straw from our carpet, but Dyson vacuums were created. Am I right? And thankfully, Groupon was also created so a guy like me could afford a Dyson. See, the Dyson vacuum cleaner was made by James Dyson. I'm convinced that when we get to the age to come, the new heavens and the new earth, in our mansions of glory, we will be pushing Dysons. <laughs> I'm, yes, right? I'm convinced of it. Like we all know dirt devils won't be there. For multiple reasons. <laughs> see, the cultural mandate found in the opening verses of the Bible is one of the ways I want you to see that your work, whatever it is, is meaningful to God and others. You were made for it. 
We need need to kind of break this false view that I'm not doing the Lord's work unless I'm a pastor or a missionary. I'm just doing all the worldly work. They're doing the Christian work. No, absolutely not. Making really, really good coffee, computers, vacuum cleaners brings glory to God and creates culture. Education, construction, business, medicine, raising children, farming, government, the arts. Where would humanity be without any of those? They all contribute to creative civilization, building out of the material world that God told us to have dominion over, to subdue, to rule. Your work contributes to culture making and glorifies God. We're going to talk a lot more about that next week. How can my job in a dish pit, I've had that job, how can a job in a dish pit possibly glorify God? Well, this is a teaser. Come back next week. We'll talk about it. But for now, I want to talk about a really important word, a theme in here about ruling that humanity is mandated to do. Before we get there, is this not most, the most common book and movie plot ever? Ordinary, obscure, even in, in poverty child or young person doing something significant and heroic and then becoming royalty. Lord of the Rings, Gladiator, The Princess Diaries, I'm told. Star Wars, and literally every Disney movie ever tells this story. Why is it in us that we feel like we need to tell and tell and tell the story of poverty and obscurity, something heroic and valiant and becoming royal? I would argue that it's because it taps into a desire we all have as human beings that that God put there this sense that we were made for something more. And this text tells us this morning that we were. We were made to rule. Ties into this talk about the image of God. But look, again, in history, the image of God was a phrase used throughout the ancient Near East. Pharaoh was called Amun-Ra, which means image of Ra, image of the sun god. Pharaoh was an image of one of the gods. Everywhere in ancient Mesopotamia, the king was called the image of God, meaning these rulers were divine or divine-like. They were royalty. But it also means that everyone else wasn't. The biblical theology of the image of God claims that all human beings, not just those of royal bloodlines, are made in the image of God. We're all kings and queens, and the world is our kingdom. There is a seamless connection between image and rule in the text. The Hebrew word rule is radah and can be translated rule, reign, or have dominion. So we see that kings and queens, really all of humanity, are made in the image of God. 
But we've also seen throughout history and in light of Genesis chapter 3 and the fall of humanity and our sin, that our motivations get twisted and we become selfish, that really throughout history there have been good rulers essentially and bad rulers. We need to recognize that our work can either contribute to good or it can contribute to the evils in the world. So when we talk about ruling and reigning, what I want you to see is that I want you to evaluate what your work contributes to. So we're going to hang our hats here for a few minutes. What is your work working towards? Because in history, there have been good and bad kings and good and bad queens responsible for incredible acts of humanitarian good and also horrific atrocities. What does your work contribute to? Genesis 3 brings human sinfulness into the mix of the fact that we were created to work, made in the image of God, and yet it's broken. This word subdue in verse 28 can mean to bring order out of chaos. It's what God did from the beginning. He brought order out of chaos, but then he tells humanity to subdue the earth, bring order out of the chaos that remains. He, he, he created all things, and then it let, he, yet he left all these untapped resources for us to subdue, to bring order out of chaos, to bring harmony to. But this word subdue, especially in light of Genesis chapter 3, can also mean to exploit or enslave, or abuse. So we can contribute to human flourishing or to oppression and injustice. And so when we think about the context of our work, of our labors, of the things we give our hands and our minds to, what is it building in this world? A natural question here is, how will you rule? It sounds funny to talk that way, right? How will you rule? about ruling, that you are to rule the earth. We don't often think that way. Have you been ruling your flowcharts recently? Did you rule that conference call? Right? This last week, I led the staff meeting. I, I would assume that the staff wouldn't say, like, Matt was ruling that meeting. I hope they wouldn't say that. We don't use that language. So what does it mean for us to rule? What does that really mean? Look, we should see ruling and subduing as stewardship, ultimately. Stewardship of what God has entrusted to us. It's incredible work, an incredible responsibility. He's entrusted to us stewardship, work that contributes to the good of humanity and the earth, and work that's helpful contributing to human flourishing. Timothy Keller put it this way, it is the rearranging of the raw materials of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. Let me say that one more time. It is the rearranging of the raw materials of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. Right? Soil and seed, the farmer with those things that produces food. Right? Sound rearranged to make beautiful music fabrics worked into fashions, raw materials turned into houses and hybrids, blobs of paint colors into stunning works of art, untrained students into capable graduates. This is the work of stewardship. Another way to put it is, does what I'm doing make the world a more garden-like place? Or just some big pollutant, I guess. I don't know. Which leads me to the last point. 
Training for reigning. That, Dallas Willard coined that phrase. Training for reigning. I want you to see, we don't talk about this enough in the church, I want you to see that there is more continuity between this age and the age to come, the new heavens and the new earth, than we often think. Let me read to you from Revelation chapter 22, starting in verse 1. The apostle John is given a vision of the age to come, and it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the thrones of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Do you notice that? As I read that description, we're hearing about a garden. We're hearing about rivers and trees and fruit. But do you also hear it? Through the middle of the street of the city, all of this is going on. See, the new heavens and the new earth will not merely be a garden, but a garden city. The world isn't going to get blown up and tossed out by God. He made it, and he made it good, and he will bring restoration to it like he does to all things. He won't do away with it. So God's purpose for humanity started in a garden, yes, but it was never meant to be limited there nor stay that way. That's why the age to come is a garden city. God didn't just have having babies and gardening in mind. He had exercising dominion over all creation in mind, turning the whole earth into a showcase of his glory now and for all eternity. N.T. Wright, really the preeminent New Testament scholar of our time, wrote this. What you do in the present, what you do now, by painting, preaching, singing, sowing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable, until the day when we leave it behind altogether, as the hymn so mistakenly puts it. I think that's all fly away. I'm not sure. They're part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. I love that line. Do you hear what the present, what you do in the present is? Building for God's kingdom. Look, God's kingdom is God's kingdom. He does that. But this work in this age is building towards the kingdom. This should excite us. Curse-free, exhilarating, satisfying work and responsibility that will always be that what you do is important in the grand scheme of things. I want to tell you a parable of Jesus from Luke 19. In Luke chapter 19, it talks about this nobleman who leaves Amina with, with three different servants. Amina was a large sum of money. And off he goes. This parable has been told in a few different ways. Or Jesus tells closely related parables along these lines. In this one in particular, when this nobleman returns, he wants to see what his servants have done with, this, with the mina, with this large sum of money. And the first says, I've taken this mina and made it into 10 more. 
And the response of the nobleman is, well done, good servant. Listen to this. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. To the next, he turns that mina into five more. And he says, well done. You are to be over five cities. The third kept it in a handkerchief or something like that and didn't do anything with it. And he was essentially called wicked, useless. Didn't do with what he had been given, with what he had been entrusted to do, anything. Anything of good. But do you notice what he said to the the faithful servants? It's kind of strange. I gave you one mina. You turned it into 10 more. Now I'm going to give you charge of 10 cities. Five cities. Now, with parables, we, we sometimes are challenged to figure out, well, what's figurative and what's not? Does it literally mean five cities in the age to come? 10 cities in the age to come? Probably not. Maybe not. Possibly, yes. Like, it, it makes a difference how we live now. And in this story, the nobleman is Jesus and the servants are his disciples. And when we're faithful with what God has entrusted to each one of us, unique and diverse, giving our hands, giving our gifts to particular things, when we're faithful with it, there is this promise that says, I'm going to give you charge of cities? There's some guys making some creative art here today as well, as you can see too. Oh, we appreciate that. <laughs> I love a book that I've been reading lately called Garden City by John Mark Comer. He's a pastor in Portland, Oregon, the coffeeest place on earth. But he, he writes about a story where he says French composer Olivier Messiaen wrote a famous piece of music called Quartet for the End of, the, for the end of Time. Has anybody heard it? Quartet for the End of Time. It was written in the winter of 1941. Messiaen was captured by the Nazis and put in the Stalag 8A, a concentration camp of Gorlitz, Germany. Well in prison, facing a brutally cruel lifestyle, he spent time reading the four Gospels and Revelation. As a follower of Jesus, he was somehow filled with hope for the world right in the middle of hell on earth. When he realized that there were three other famous musicians in the camp, he found four instruments. A cello missing a string, a beat-up violin, a well-worn clarinet, and a piano with keys that stuck together. And he composed an incredible piece of chamber music. The New Yorker later called it the most ethereally beautiful music of the 20th century, written in the midst of hell on earth. They first played it in January, right in the middle of the concentration camp to hundreds of prisoners and guards. In the freezing cold, Messiah later said, the cold was excruciating, the stalag buried under the snow, the four performers played on broken down instruments, but never have I had an audience who listened with such rapt attention. You and I work in the present world, right in the middle of all the chaos and suffering and pain for a glimpse of the future world. Set free from evil and death. Look, the hope is that as we do whatever it is we do, people will see our work. And shivering in the cold they may come a little closer 
will listen to the music and maybe, just maybe, start to see that in the middle of all the sorrow and the emptiness and the trauma of this life, hope, eternal, breaking through the ground. So what does that look like? Everything you do that makes the world more garden-like is training for future reigning. Does your work do that? I mean, do you cheat? Do you belittle? Is it for the good of humanity or only yourself? Here's what contributes to making the world a more garden-like place now, which for us is training for future reigning. Whether it contributes, if it contributes to human flourishing, if it contributes to sustainability and good for the earth, if it's good for you, but also for community and the world, and if it's good for the culture and fostering it in beautiful ways. Look, we're just scratching the surface, surface this morning on good work, on a theology of work. We're going to get highly practical next week. But for now, I want to conclude where we ought to conclude, with the gospel. See, what's so stunning about the gospel is just like God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son reached down and got his hands dirty, didn't he? Put his hands in the dust and fashioned something transformatively good and beautiful. This is Jesus, the Son of God, royalty of royalty that had no place to rest his head, that was despised and rejected, and yet he came willingly and bore a cross of shame so that we could have life and have it abundantly now and forevermore. He bore a cross and he died so that we could live. There was no greater servant. There was no person ever who made this world a more garden city-like place for all eternity. He served. He laid his life down. No one has made a bigger difference for the age to come than Jesus. And then there's another stunning revelation, as if that isn't enough already. The Apostle Paul says it in 2 Timothy 2, where he says, The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, if we've surrendered our life to Christ, if we've believed on him for salvation, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, listen to this, we will also reign with him. That sound familiar? That word reign can also be translated rule. It's always been God's agenda. And Jesus made a way, stepping into the muck and the mire and this fallen world and broken work and accomplished the finished work of the cross. He's accomplished it all there for me and you. Not only is his grace sufficient, but he's also saying that believe in me, work towards my ends of restoring all things, and you will reign, you will rule with me for all eternity. You're made in my image. You are mine, and I have work for you to do. Praise God that Jesus became poor so that we could become rich. Praise God that the King of Kings invites us to rely on His finished work. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your finished work. 
Thank you that we see this picture in the garden of a mandate, of a calling, that in our unique and diverse gifts, you call us to create culture and contribute to it for the good of humanity and to your glory. Thank you ultimately that your son Jesus has done the kind of work that brings redemption and restoration and makes a way for the broken work to be righted, for all things to one day be restored into an eternity of beautiful, perfect, satisfying work and responsibility. Oh, Jesus, would you impress upon us, would you move among us by your Spirit in such a way that calls every one of us, the hundreds and hundreds of us at Central who will hear this this weekend, go from this place and give our Monday to Friday, our Saturday, our night shifts, the work of our hands, our labors, to your glory. And out of grateful response for all that you have done for us. We thank you, Jesus, and we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. We're going to respond now um, in the most fitting way that we can. We're going to take communion together. So I'm going to invite the band up. Uh, the communion servers are going to come on up as well. We have stations all around the room. And I uh, just invite you.